We are in a study based on the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and um, we're coming to a chapter today that uh, is about the, the grace of God on the heels of a chapter last week on the love of God. So I'm going to give you a little table assignment that's of the kind that I hate, but I'm sitting on the stool, not at one of the tables, so I get to do this. I want to ask you this question. If you could have a bucket full of the love of God or a bucket full of the grace of God, which would you choose? You've got 25 seconds to discuss that at your tables. You don't need to come to a consensus, but I just want you to think about it and chat about it. Get a bucket full of the love of God or a bucket full of the grace of God. And you can't say both, not at, at least not till the end of the sermon. So I wonder how this balances out. How many would have said, I want a bucket full of the love of God, please? And you're going to have to vote either one. So if I see no hands going up at some tables, I'll be coming there. All right, how many would have said the grace of God? Sort of split evenly, right? Oh, who had both? Yeah, Dennis. So, um, and I resist the urge to go to your Enneagram number or your Myers-Briggs or your personality type, which would have predicted which of the two would be your choice, right? Um, but I have remembered what some of you were saying, so there we go. The love of God or the grace of God? So as we think about this today, um, Packer has encouraged us to have a, a balconier's view of the, the person of God as well as a traveler's view. So we're always trying to do this, always trying to think about the theory, about the theology, the doctrine, at the same time talking about actually living life. And as we do that, um, we come across the idea of the grace of God um, and we need to look at the grace of God from the balcony's point of view as well as from the traveler's point of view. And I think what we do need to do is twin our thinking with the love of God from the balcony and from the, the traveler's point of view. Bono, um, you know, lead singer of the best band ever, said... The most powerful idea that's entered the world in the last few thousand years, the idea of grace, is the reason I would like to be a Christian. Grace. Interesting. The question I have for us this morning is this. Do we need God's grace as much as we need God's love? Because I think we all know we need God's love. We all need love, I mean, just as a reality in our lives and in our religious lives, we, we all know we need God's love. You know, few people would say, no, I'm not interested. Um, if, if you're thinking about God, um, I'm, I'm sure that wanting to know about his love is an important part of your thinking. But when it comes to the grace of God, the question I have is this. Do we think we need the grace of God as much as we think we need the love of God? We certainly know we need the love of God. But how badly do we need the grace of God? 
For some people, it's a no-brainer. They'll say, I need the grace of God for sure. When I look in the mirror in the morning, I know I need the grace of God. Whatever that is, I know that I, I really need that. But Packer, who was writing decades ago, um, I think poked out some things that today have become more and more uh, prevalent and obvious to us about the fact that humankind today doesn't actually need the grace of God. So the question is, do we need the grace of God as much as we need the love of God? We know we need the love of God. And I'm putting out there that it seems to me that Packer may be right in his day and then forecasting to today to suggest that we, we really don't need the grace of God or we don't think we need the grace of God or we don't practically avail ourselves of the grace of God. So as I try to figure out what Packer was talking about, um, there are three things that I think he, he gets at um, that may be the reasons that the grace of God has been demoted. So his, his position is going to be that we need to have the grace of God held in high, high regard um, and we need to have lofty ideas about the grace of God, and we need to avail ourselves of the grace of God desperately. That There's where Packer would come from. But he would say that's been eroded, and the way he talks in the chapter, I think, identifies three ways in which in society, maybe particularly in Western society, um, the interest in the need for the grace of God um, ha has been kind of backpedaled or uh, put on the shelf, if nothing else. The first thing is that I think um, Packer gets that moral complacency. Um, that w when it comes to the, the grace of God, the grace of God has to do with morality, right? It has to do with, with ethics. It has to do with right and wrong. Uh, and... If, if, we're, if we're not paying attention to the grace of God, there may be some things that are inhibiting that consideration by what's going on in our lives, in our communities, in our societies, and in Western civilization. And I think the first thing that Packer seems to be getting at um, is that there is a general complacency about morality and ethics. And, in fact, that we live rather pleasant lives so that we're not caused to worry about these things. We're not caused to think about these things. And it's, it's kind of a positive thing and negative thing at the same time. We're very pleased for the ability to live rather comfortable lives. Um, and Packer would say, that being the case, what, what may be happening is that we stop thinking about issues of morality, issues of ethics, issues of justice, issues of right and wrong, issues of um, how God feels about the lives that we live and the societies that we build and the community that we are. So the, the first thing is this idea of moral complacency that we may just have been... Um, lulled into a way of living that doesn't need to worry about this so much. We, we don't need to worry so much about the grace of God. When, when do you need to think about that? Um, may, maybe only in the, 
the dark of night or when you're finding yourselves with anxiety or worry or something and and then then you you maybe pull out the grace of god as something to think about but generally speaking there's this moral complacency that says well we're fine we don't even think about that we we don't even talk about that i mean we don't we don't go somewhere to listen to people talk about that stuff the second thing is what I, and i'm coining these um out of what packer seems to be arguing is moral desensitization. That two things are going on at the same time in all of our lives. One is we're doing fine. The other is that the world is in terrible shape. So what do you do with that? When you're doing just fine, then Packer seems to be suggesting that there's no need to be thinking a lot about the grace of God. We, we don't need it. I mean, when do we need to cash in chips on the grace of God? But secondly, when, when the world is in such terrible shape, and not, not only the world out there, but when we watch politics and, and shake our heads at the politicians who say, I, I told lies from the start, um, truth is truth as it's understood by you and all, those sorts of things make us shake our heads and say, really? And then beyond that, we go to the atrocities of typical things overseas, and um, you have to figure out what to do. On the one hand, you're doing fine, generally speaking. Your life is good. On the other hand, the world is in terrible shape. So what are you going to do about that? And Packer, I think, is suggesting that what has been happening, so from his perspective decades ago all the way up until today, um, is that basically we get desensitized, we get worn down by bad news. You know, so when you hear something that five years ago would have shocked you on the news about how leaders behave or something, um, today you don't even notice. It's who's the next to tumble that way or to do that sort of thing. So you either have to all of a sudden perk up and say, hey, you know what, I, I, I have to think about this and then someone like me might step in and say, well, I think thinking about this has to do with the grace of God. And I, I want to tell you why. So we're fine. So there's this moral complacency, but we're also desensitized. We're, you know, how long can you, can you respond um, energetically to, to the same thing over and over and over? So this atrocity happens. But we've already seen something like that only a few days ago, and unless we're willing to change everything about us, we probably just have to let it go. Try not to let it bother us. Sort of say, well, that's the way it goes. That's the way they are. That's the way the world is these days. And, and so we motor on. The third thing um, is moral concessionism. And these terms are just kind of icky. I just had to find a label so I can talk about the things I want to talk about. What I mean by moral concessionism um, is the fundamental belief that, that, that God is not great, that, that God is at our disposal. He's, he is, um, he's committed to us because he needs us. And the interesting thing for me reading this chapter again by Packer is that he uses the term pagan all the time. 
And he says we're pagans. He says that the way we relate to God is the way the pagans always related to God, which is that God is less than great, but that God is needy, and you can manipulate God to get what you want from him. So I listened to an interview this week on BBC with um, some folks who were doing a, a study about Lord Shiva, and um, he's, he's the god of destruction, and so there's this farm community that has had farm destruction for several years because of, of weather patterns, but they are self-mutilating um, to try to appease Lord Shiva because they think they can convince Lord Shiva not to wreck their crops this time around. And they're doing awful things. They're, they're, they're putting hooks in their backs and hanging people from, from trees. Um, they are mutilating almost every part of the body that can be found. And they're believing that Lord Shiva inhabits those who do these things and that surely Lord Shiva will give them a good harvest. And we are abhorred by that, except to the degree that we think God is willing to negotiate with us, we may be of the same kind. So moral concessionism says that um, if we bother God enough, he'll give in. Right? If you keep asking, so like, you know, daddy, daddy, please, daddy, 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 please, no, don't say it, daddy, 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 please. Oh, for goodness sake, you can have it if you stop pestering me. But that's what God is like, that God will concede that he owes us at the end of the day. The theological outcome of this is universalism, which basically says you don't need to worry about grace because at the end of the day, God will say, oh, fine. Everybody's good. If that's where we are, then we don't need to talk about the doctrine of grace because grace doesn't matter if at the end of the day God's going to say whatever. If God is going to actually let us manipulate how he behaves. So we, we gradually let God slip lower and lower till we have done the thing that scripture wants us to be carefully, careful not to do, which is to make a God in our image. So we make God as much like us as we can possibly make him or her or it so that at the end of the day um, we can motor on and, and say don't worry we're, we're just fine so the love of God yes we, we need to feel the love of God because that's a good thing it's a warm and fuzzy thing and it's a powerful thing but the grace of God which says that we are desperately in need of his mercy is not polite coffee house conversation, right? You don't, you don't need to worry about that because, um, so here's the academic view. We, we, we're complacent because, yeah, it's, it's just hard to find your way anymore. And it's, things are going well. And when they're going well, you just say, good, let, let's carry on. Keep doing it the way we have been doing it. Um, there are terrible things happening, but goodness me, I hope somebody knows how to get control of government and politics and economics and all of that kind of stuff because it just seems like it's getting worse and worse and I can't think about it anymore I'm, I'm just worn out of and you know tired out of hearing all this stuff and as far as God is concerned well my hope is at the end of the day he's a nice guy so th there's no 
hint through all of those sort of streams of a worry that God's not happy with this. That God's not happy with complacency or that he's not happy with the atrocities that we've become insensitive to. And that at the end of the day, he might just not say it's fine. That we do not think that way today, that at the end of the day, God will blow the whistle and say, no, we're sure that he'll, he'll find a way to tell us it's, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry about it. So how do, we, how do we get the sense that is lost to us, to whatever degree it is, that we need the grace of God more than we might think we do? To, to know that we need the grace of God would mean that we're bankrupt. You know, it's that we're helpless, that we're, we're done. We, we have nowhere else to turn, nothing else to turn to. We would need to be in some condition like that in order for the grace of God to become important to us or accessible to us, perhaps. So how do we get there? I'm really not sure how we get there except to somehow gain a sense um, of of why the grace of God is as powerful and necessary as the love of God. And to get to the point that we ultimately say, we can't do this. So we can't manage our lives, we can't manage our affairs, we can't manage our futures so we have to turn to God. We, we have to turn to him and ask him for what we're not asking him for anymore. We're just simply wanting to use him as well as we can. And the best example that I can think of, of the absolute desperation that needs grace, is the story of Mephibosheth. Remember that story? So here's the deal. Mephibosheth is a five-year-old, and his father and grandfather are Jonathan and King Saul, and they have both died in battle against David, the usurper. When the nurse who's looking after Mephibosheth, you think it's easy to say that word? Say it with me already. Mephibosheth. She runs for her life with Mephibosheth, the five-year-old, and drops him. And both of his legs, both of his feet, somehow are injured for life. Long time after this, um, David has been settled as the, the sovereign. And he's reflecting on things one day, and it occurs to him that there was his dear friend Jonathan, and he wondered if there was anyone of Jonathan's household that he could be kind to. But here's, here's the operative word, kind. I've, I've told you once or twice that the only Hebrew word, well, you, two Hebrew words you need, shalom and chesed. You should say that. Chesed. Chesed, right? Chesed is the most beautiful Hebrew word for grace. And it's got all kinds of other translations. It's, um, it's kindness, it's favor, it's mercy, it's, it's everything good that could be bundled into the idea of grace. So David is thinking about things, and he says, is there anybody that needs grace like that in their lives? 
So he says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And David says, Mephibosheth, when he was brought to him, and he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. They say there's this boy, and he's, he's in this hideaway sort of place because the whole household of Saul is terrified of the retribution of the household of David. So Mephibosheth has not been seen, and Mephibosheth is not to be found without careful inquiry. And so David says, where is he? And they say, well, he's in this house, in this town. They say, bring him, bring him here. So they bring Mephibosheth, and what happens there is just full of drama. Mephibosheth is brought, and we're not told what his physical condition is, except in the passage, at the start and finish, we're told he's lame in both feet. That, that's the, um, the editor's comment on this story. By the way, Mephibosheth, the one who is lame in both feet. The one who's lame in both feet. And what David is occupied with is chesed, is with grace. So it's a story about grace and being lamed in two feet. So when Mephibosheth is brought, and he, what do you think is in his, his mind and heart? I imagine he must, first of all, be terrified because he presumes he'll be killed because he's, he's part of, of the defeated house of Saul. Beyond that, um, He's probably furious and seething with anger because he has lived every day of his life because of what David did to his father and grandfather. And now David is calling him to an audience. So he comes, and I think he's full of fear, and I think he's full of rage. And David says to him, don't be afraid. I want to show you God's kindness. I want to show you the chesed of God for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I wonder if he knew about the friendship between David and Jonathan and the covenant between David and Jonathan and the heart um, welding between these two boys. Probably not. But David says, it's because of your father, Jonathan. And in Mephibosheth's head, it's, you're the reason my father is dead. You're the reason my grandfather is dead. What are you going to do with me? And David says, you don't need to worry. I will be kind to you. And then what he did was astonishing. He, he returned to Mephibosheth the full wealth of Saul. Everything. The, the wealth of the house of Saul he gave to this grandson. And then he told the servant of Mephibosheth to make sure that Mephibosheth would come to the table every time a meal was served in the king's palace. And he would eat with the king at the king's table with the full wealth of the dynasty of Saul at his disposal. Don't be afraid. Far more than don't be afraid. Enjoy the riches of grace. But Mephibosheth needed it. And he knew he needed it. 
So how do we get ourselves to the place where we have some of the things that happened in Mephibosheth's heart probably, um, hatred and anger, rage, um, that needed to be replaced by receiving complete wealth and forgiveness and kindness and love. Um, fear, where we're managing all we can ourselves. Mephibosheth would have to give up that fear because the king said come to dinner and Mephibosheth would have to decide whether he thought he would lose his head at dinner or whether he'd have a seat at the king's table. So somehow or other, um, the reason this story is in the Bible is not only to give us the history of the, the households of Saul and, and David, but it's to give us this caricature of the posture of needing kindness. So the story leaves us with, with nothing on the, um, the asset side of the ledger for Mephibosheth. That there's no reason to be him. He lives his life in terror of being found. He lives his life in pain because of injury. He lives his life with anger and resentment and probably a desire for revenge. He lives his life in the shadows and, and there's nothing on the asset side. It's all liabilities. To understand grace somehow or other requires that we find ourselves acknowledging that the liability side of our lives and our community and our society is longer by far than the asset side. As long as we believe that the asset side is strong enough to lobby or to use, we won't grasp that grace is a marvelous thing. So we sing our songs, we sing our hymns, and they extol grace. But my question is just a simple one this morning, which is how desperately do we really want or need God's grace? Um, are we motoring along, managing the world the way we find it? Or are we finding ourselves in the shoes or lack of shoes of Mephibosheth saying, no, no, there's, there's, there, there's just too much negative. There's too much wrong. There's too much hurt. There's too much harm. So we, we need to look up to see if up there there is grace that's available to us. I think it's easier to grasp God's love than God's grace. God's grace requires tough thinking about right and wrong, you know, about good and bad, about me and the world and me and us. So Mephibosheth is a good example for us um, that we should try to find ourselves in that hideaway place, um, shrinking, afraid, angry, and yet there's... There's a, there's a news of grace that comes. And I, my prayer is that grace will visit you. That there will be a way that you will hear a message that the king wants to talk to you. Um, and that when you hear that, that you'll understand that it's, it's a, a message of grace to you. Not a message of condemnation. Not a message of vengeance. Not a message of punishment. Um, 
David, David had no notion, no notion of harming this boy because he'd made a promise to his father. God has no notion of harming you because he made a covenant with his son. And so he says, because of my son, I want to know if I can show the Lord's kindness to you. Why don't we pray? Father, help us to believe that you are not only full of love, but you're also full of grace. That we don't need to be afraid to face you. We don't need to avoid thinking about you. We don't need to um, dismiss you because of being confused or having um, had um, wrong things or unhelpful things shown to us or taught to us. Um, Teach us to admire your grace and teach us to receive it in our lives. In Jesus' name.